0: It is a great pleasure to be with you today. I appreciate Jeff and the elders for inviting me to be with you for this worship assembly. I asked Jeff exactly what he wanted me to do today, and he said he wanted a message. (laughs) He wanted a sermon. I'd like to do two things uh, very briefly to give an update on the work at uh, the Bible Chair and then for the message for uh, this morning. My wife and I moved here just three years ago. This is the beginning of our fourth year at the Bible Chair. As you know, it's been there, and the work has been ongoing for some time now, since 1972, almost now 50 years. I I do want to give you an update or two that is uh, ongoing, that is present, that may be be of interest to you. I, I want to say, in addition, that... Um, This has been one of the most enjoyable works that I've been involved in, and I enjoy these students greatly. And um, the Christian club that we have on campus, Kappa Chi, um, is one outreach that we have, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that in just a moment. I have some slides up uh, just to briefly acquaint you, if you're not already, with Um, the uh, Bible chair, where it's located, and some of the things that we're doing. This is on the corner of Jackson and 25th Avenue, just on the southern end of uh, Amarillo College. And uh, this building houses the Bible chair. It was um, a professor's home, and it has been remodeled. And on inside, we have a beautiful classroom, and that's very much like the classes in the other buildings in Bird or Parcells, where we also teach. Um, but it is um, limited or limiting us in regard to the number of people that we can host there. And especially during COVID, of course, uh, the limitations of um, proximity to, to each other. We just simply can't meet in there and can't share the meals together and the devotionals that we once did. All of that is now being done online. Um, here's a shot while we were meeting and uh, at the classroom that we have that also hosts for the meal by the way I want to express my appreciation to families here who provide meals on a regular basis someone came up just a moment ago and asked me about that schedule well it's on hold right now but we do appreciate you for providing food uh, for the students and the opportunity for them to be together there and to hear a devotional. If you've been there, you will know that it's almost like a world Bible uh, class, (laughs) world religions class, I should say, because there are people from all the various uh, major world religions. We've had uh, Jewish people. We've had Muslim girls to be a part of it. We've had Buddhist, Mormons. We've had, across the board, Catholic, Protestant alike, to be a part of those fellowships with the full knowledge that we're going to exalt Christ and that the devotionals will be christ or any with a Christian worldview. But this has been an important part of our work. Um, I, I do want you to be aware, if you're not already, that there was and is until the middle of next month another Bible chair on campus. And here's a picture of it I took just the other day walking in front of it is uh, Southwest. It's not connected with Southwest Church Church of Christ, but the title of it is Southwest Bible Chair. Mr. John Kohler has operated that for some years now and has been a co-teacher of the religion courses with me. Um, The big change that is going to be initiated uh, beginning in Fall 2 is that this Bible Chair is closing. In conversation with John just recently, he gave to me the reason is financial, uh, that one of their major supporters had to drop out. And in doing so, after being there, I, I think now 18 years plus, um, he's been teaching, uh, alternating with me the core courses for a, an associate degree in religion. So the implications of that are yet to be felt. But um, the immediate result of that will be that our Bible chair will be providing all the instruction uh, for an associate degree. And so it will uh, require a great deal more on me uh, to provide those and we will be the only one. There are three religious bodies or groups on campus, Counting Southwest, Amarillo Bible Chair, which is ours, and there's the Baptist Fellowship Uh, and they do not teach courses on campus but we do have those three groups Um, but this is going to be a big change in the closure of Southwest. Um, I want to give you a few pictures of our present facility for the purpose of showing you where we're going to expand and that has been underway now for one year where we have been working on plans to extend it out in the backyard area, which would be the left side of the building as you see it there, and um, and and show you some of the plans that are already in progress on expanding the Bible chair. Here's in the backyard um, where it will be joined to the new part of the structure and extending uh, out uh, eastward in that backyard. Um, here's another view of uh, the building from... Um, Uh, lot 9 parking lot 9 and the fence around that back uh, yard that we have so we have space there to expand Uh, one of the plans we had was to tear this building down and just totally rebuild that was going to be quite an expensive ordeal and so we decided just to add on to this structure a larger assembly area Uh, there's a picture of it from the backyard looking toward campus some of the buildings that you can see out in the distance, they are looking north. Um, just a word or two about uh, the Christian club that we have. Um, all of this was in place and underway before I arrived um, under the work of Jerry Klein, also Frank, who is here, um, and others who served before me. Um, but this is one of the largest uh, clubs on campus. We have a well-organized club facility for Uh, The students, they are encouraged to participate in it. In the various clubs, there are 40 on the six campuses of AC. And we have four full-time people uh, for the college who are working, organizing, planning. And these are, the records are well-kept. Students must participate in them. They can't just sign up and say, I'm a member. Uh, They have to be actively involved for them to have this on their record. This is an important thing for universities when students transfer, that they participated in social, intellectual activities like this. Um, Because we are not able to meet there, we were a bit concerned about how this was going to operate. Many of them simply stopped operating uh, from the last part of spring to and now into the fall. We did not, we are continuing. The students are meeting online and during the registration period at the beginning of this semester, we registered 118 students. Uh, that's remarkable, it's the highest number we've ever had. We've had one meeting with them online already for those who were able to and who had time at the uh, uh, designated time that I gave them on Zoom. We will have another meeting shortly as this month comes to an end. Um, But all of these students, I was impressed with their interest in being a part of a Christian club. Just the comments they made in acknowledging, yes, I want to be a part of it, and we look forward to meeting them. The only thing I regret is not being able to meet with them face-to-face, have a meal with them, and then to conduct a devotional with them face-to-face. But we are doing that online. By the way, this is a significant part of our work. Um, It it is um, contact outside a classroom. Uh, We teach classes for them in philosophy, world religions, and then all of the Bible classes uh, that we do for a core curriculum for um, uh, an associate degree in religion. But it is the direct association you have with them and getting to know them personally both in class and out that is so very important. By the way, there are a couple of students here from my Romans class, and we welcome them. We're glad that they're here today. Um, I, I appreciate Ken McLaughlin and uh, Kimberly um, who put together these drawings, architectural drawings here. Uh, these are computer-generated computer, uh, images here of our plans. I ask if they would do this Uh, so that I could show it to churches and have something on paper or on screen so that we could show them what our plans are. But that's the extension of it um, onto the old building. By the way, Brother Ken was at uh, Bell Avenue showing it to our elders um, just last month at our regular elders meeting, and I appreciate him greatly for doing that and letting them know um, uh, something about... um, What exactly we have in mind and uh, it is with their agreement and consent that we're proceeding with this. We've raised about a third of the cost of this addition and we plan on raising the entire amount before we even began the construction so that it will be completed and pay for when we began. But there's um, the elevation view of it. There's the inside, uh, a beautiful computer-generated image of a wonderful area where students can gather. So far, we've been able to have only about, we have 36 seats in that crowded classroom area where they can meet. Um, But we could easily host here uh, 60 to 75. So we're looking forward to the time when we can complete that. I'll quickly pass through these because these are electrical drawings, uh, foundation drawings, um, almost a complete set here. And I appreciate them greatly for providing that for us so that churches can know what we have in mind. Uh, In 2017, I was um, invited by Jerry, Jerry Klein, to attend with him a conference at Canyon at WT. And Brother uh, Kent Moranis hosted the occasion. We had various speakers there. Um, But it was an assembly of those who do this kind of work on on campuses, both state and um, religious campuses. But to uh, address the assembly, the president of WT, President Walter Windler, um, was scheduled to do the introduction and to uh, welcome the people at the conference, but his plane was delayed and he wasn't able to be there. And so he asked his uh, dean of nursing if he would um, read his prepared statements. I was so impressed by what he said that I asked for a copy, and I appreciate very much uh, them arranging that and sending me a copy. Listen to what this um, introduction from President Windler said. He said, I think no more important issue exists on college campuses than building a bridge between faith and reason. It has been neglected for too long and to the peril of all. Institutional insistence on the separation of our spiritual intellectual life creates a rudderless environment that seems to be the goal of postmodernism. We relegate faith to the place of idiosyncrasy or bias and almost demand that our beliefs be checked at the campus gate, like six shooters in a saloon. Isaac Newton, not long ago recognized by Britain's Royal Society as the greatest scientist of all time, said this There are more sure marks of authenticity in the Bible than in any profane history. Horace Greeley said this, it's impossible to enslave mentally or socially a Bible reading people. The principles of the Bible are the groundwork of human freedom. No one can argue the power of either the scientist or the editor of these words. Reflecting on the importance of a mass, star nor star, on which to guide our thinking and the principles by which we live and work together are the essence of the Old and New Testaments. Guided by Christ's love and wisdom, they cannot be reasonably overlooked by any thoughtful person. If our mind is the seat of our reason and our heart the seat of our faith, Almighty God has placed them only 18 inches apart. It is interesting that through our construction of a contorted reality, a postmodern reality, we seem to want them on different planets rather than in the same human being. Universities should for- provide a place where these relationships flourish in discussions. Rather than relegating them to the periphery Or, as is almost universally the case, these are the kinds of observations that I will share if I'm able to make it. This is valuable work that you're doing. Don't faint or grow weary. God will bless you and bless those gathered here for the purpose of edifying Christ in thought and action. Those are the words of President Wendler. I was impressed, especially when he said that there is no more important issue existing on college campuses than building a bridge between faith and reason. And that's what I want to speak about briefly today. That's what we're trying to do. By the way, I brought a textbook with me, and it is titled from 1853, The Right and Place of the Bible. In public schools. That was about the time they were discussing planning public school systems. And they were arguing for the right of the Bible to be taught in our public schools. By the way, regularly I get students who are in journalism and they'll come over to the Bible chair. And they're writing articles for their class. And one of the first questions that they ask when I agree to sit down with them and answer their questions is, why are you here? What right do you have to be on a state campus? Well, I first tell them I'm not on a state campus. We're across the street. (laughs) The building is actually owned by Churches of Christ. But there is no limitation in the Constitution on our being there. And we have the right of speech as others do. And that book makes some powerful arguments in the 1850s on the right of the Bible in the public square and in public schools. And so we have to let them know that that is true. The limitation of the Constitution is on Congress. Congress shall not make a law Respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It's on them, not on us. That phrase, the separation of church and state, is in a letter from Thomas Jefferson, the president, to the Danbury Baptist Assembly, a question that they had asked. And he talked about the wall of separation. That is keeping Congress out of the activities and rights and freedoms of religious groups. It's been twisted. It's been turned as if it's a limitation on us. We have a right to be there. But this thing about faith and reason, that's what President Windler was getting at. And he said, we need to build that bridge between the two. And not allow them to separate them as if to say there's no place for faith here. And I love the statement that he made that between the heart and the brain is only 18 inches. And God Almighty put them mighty close together and in the same individual. Brother Thompson asked this important question. What is the truth of the matter about faith and reason? And should they be separated? Can faith and knowledge coexist? Or must one be viewed as the antithesis of the other? He said in addressing this, that we err with reference to both faith and knowledge when we separate the two. And then he begins the answer to the question, what is the connection between faith and knowledge? By the way, you could also say faith and science. Science in Latin means to know. You hear it on television all the time. It's hard to turn on the set without hearing somebody say, I believe in science. As if to say if you're religious, you don't. Or that they're somehow separated. And that they cannot be mixed. Mixed. That faith has nothing to do with knowledge. He here quotes Flannery O'Connell Connor, a well-known Catholic author, who said this where you have absolute solutions or knowledge, you have no need of faith. Faith is what you have in the absence of knowledge. He's just one of many voices who say that the two are irreconcilable, that they do not belong together. That is false. But you can find it in almost any religious body if you take the books off the shelf and look at them under that section of faith and knowledge and see what they say about it. I have a few quotations here. Of those who deny it, as indicated earlier, he said, this author said, There is not enough evidence anywhere to absolutely prove God. But there's adequate evidence to justify the assumption or faith that God exists. The assumption. But you can't prove it. Here's another one in the book, The World and Literature of the Old Testament. The Bible claims to be inspired of God. But there's no way to prove it. Can't prove, he can't disprove. Although arguments have been advanced on both sides, the author said. It must be accepted by faith or rejected by unbelief. Another author. In all matters of a religious epistemology, that's the study of knowledge we come to the question of distinguishing between absolutely provable knowledge and that which is faith-dependent to some degree or another. In other words, men of strong faith act like they have full knowledge, even though in this life they can never have any more than a strong faith. That's an extraordinary statement, but it's very common. Author after author and all of the religious bodies across the spectrum are saying things like this. That in being a person of faith, you act like you know. But you really don't. By the way, one of the reasons why I think classes like philosophy of knowledge, epistemology, which... Is one of the classes that I teach in an introduction to philosophy. That is an important class. It's an important study, epistemology. How do you know what you know? And there's a whole group of people that want to limit your access to knowledge just through your five senses. That's all that you can say you absolutely know. They are called empiricists. That's a false view of knowledge. Knowledge is far greater than that, far broader than that. If we were to limit what we know, just by the access of our five senses, our knowledge would be extraordinarily small. We'd have to get rid of 95% of the things we think we know and all of the libraries because those books were written by other people of their experiences, of their experiments, of their travels, not yours, the empirical view will not stand. I watch it in classes when I present it. It is astonishing, almost with universal approval, that knowledge is broader. Yes, it is based upon the five senses. Yes, that's where you began. But you should never, never limit knowledge to only that which you can know through your five senses. And we do not act like we know something when we don't. That is not a person of faith. Here's another author. Uh, Arlie Hoover wrote this. Faith, he describes it this way, standing between knowledge and ignorance... Certainty and credulity in a sense partakes of both. It has some evidence which relates to knowledge, and yet it has uncertainty because the evidence is indirect. So he said on a scale, if you were to put it up here, knowledge is at the top and ignorance at the bottom, faith is somewhere in between. And partakes of both knowledge and ignorance. Both certainty and credulity. That is an incorrect view of faith. And it is a tremendous limitation of knowledge. Listen to what Isaiah said, he used the terms know and believe synonymously with reference to God. He said in chapter 43, verse 10, You are my witnesses, says Jehovah, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and neither shall there be after me. Even I am Jehovah, and beside me There is no Savior. Have you ever noticed that? That you have knowledge, know, and believe. Or we could say science and faith in the same passages. Brother Dick Centeno wrote this in a book, The Concept of Rational Knowledge, or rational belief, rather. He said to admit that Christianity is only probable is to admit the possibility that it, in fact, might be a hoax. Could you, in your most irrational moment, imagine the slightest possibility of an apostle preaching the God of probability? Or the God who may be? And then Brother Brad Brumling wrote this. In, in a writing, Reason and Revelation, he says, Some have made the mistake of thinking that faith is to be set in opposition to knowledge. As though the more one knows, the less faith he needs. By the way, have you ever thought of this? That people living during Jesus' day were right there in his presence. They saw him. And yet they still needed faith. Thomas, reach hither your hand. Put it in mind, The scar in my hand and the scar in my side. And no longer be faithless but believing. And yet he was there able to see the resurrected Christ. But he still needed faith. Faith and knowledge are related. One does not exclude the other. He said, Brother Bromling said, this is a false concept of faith. Faith is knowledge based When one gains knowledge of the truth, he's in a position then to engage his will and commit himself to the requirements of that knowledge. By the way, some other passages where know and believe are in the same passage. Paul, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded he's able to keep what I've committed unto him against that day. Second Timothy 1.12. Or in the first letter, 1 Timothy 4, he speaks of some in the latter days who would command people against marriage. And he would forbid them concerning eating of meats, he said, which God ordained to be received with thanksgiving in them that believe and know the truth. Then Jesus said to those who believed on him, If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I love the statement, the prologue to the Gospel of Luke. When Luke is writing to his friend and Roman official, Theophilus, he said, we received this information about the life of Christ from those who were ministers and eyewitnesses. And he said, I also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, I wanted to write to you so that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. It didn't sound like Luke believed in this. You've got to act like it. Or it might be true or it might not. Luke didn't believe that. You can make this statement not be inconsistent in doing it. I believe in science. That is true science. You can also say, I believe the Scriptures to be God's Word. And I believe that God exists. And I know that he exists. The problem with this discussion of science and knowledge is that there is bad science and there's bad religion. And when you mix those together, it never comes out well. But there's also true science, which is true knowledge, and true religion. Or as James would say, pure and undefiled. And when you put those two together, there's harmony. But yet on television and in writings, they want us to believe that you can't can't accept both. You can't say that you believe in science or have knowledge and at the same time be a person of faith. The only thing I would add to what Brother Wendler said was this. He said there's no more important work on our campuses and building a bridge between faith and reason, I would also say that that's the task of churches. That's what we must do in churches. And not allow this erosion of the biblical definition of faith to be in our midst. And there has been an erosion. And we do need classes on what we can know. And it is the responsibility of the Bible chair on a state setting, in a state setting, to help build that bridge. And that's what we're trying to do. It's to show the relationship between the two and how that the two can exist in harmony. Thank you so much for listening the way you have today. I'm grateful to you. Here's a statement by Ben Franklin that just isn't true. If you want to see by faith, you have to close the eye of reason. There's that science versus faith or prayer. Mahatma Gandhi said, faith must be enforced by reason. When faith become blind, it dies. He's absolutely right about that. And the last slide asks the question, where's the contradiction between faith and knowledge? doesn't exist not in scripture you haven't responded to the gospel you can know the one you're responding to you can know God and you can know that you know it John said hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments we invite while we stand and sing together